0: The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Girl in the Picture, Episode 5 Don't run, thought Elizabeth. Just walk with purpose. Blend with the crowd. Make it look like you belong here. Blending in had always been her weakest skill. In conversation, she could lie to anyone's face but walking was different. She barely remembered how to put one foot in front of the other without looking like she was remembering how to do so. They had only one advantage, the ebb and flow of industry people. Here in the makeshift streets between buildings, nothing looked quite real. Among the suspended laborers and costume talent, who would notice a man and woman walking abreast, making their way from one part of the lot to another. Once inside the gate, each worker tended to a private list of tasks, oblivious to anyone else. Elizabeth jutted her chin. That should be it. I see it, answered Takata. A massive, barn-like structure loomed ahead of them. They both saw it, yes, but they also smelled it. The stench of straw and manure was palpable. The walls were densely constructed out of old railroad ties, coffee-colored and streaked with age. In the upper tier, ties had been removed to ventilate the interior. At ground level, there were no windows at all. In the front, Elizabeth saw two enormous barn doors, locked with chain. Outside, several men sat in canvas chairs. Their chins were scruffy, and they wore loose-fitting outfits, each fiddled with some kind of billy club. There was no getting past these goons, not without a fight. At first glance, this looked like the only way in. Had Elizabeth not visited the county clerk and paid a hefty bribe, she would never have found blueprints of the Copeland lot. And if she hadn't studied those blueprints so carefully, she would have thought that those swinging doors were their only shot. But this wasn't the only entrance. Elizabeth and Takada strolled past the goons as casually as they could. Takada even tipped his hat, and the men nodded stoically back. They kept walking, along the perimeter of the building, protected from the sun by a sliver of shade. Just walk, Elizabeth repeated to herself. You work here, a regular old producer, just another part of the team. They reached the back. The alley was sunny and vacant. There was nothing to see but a regular door. A fire door, as it turned out. Takada kept watch as Elizabeth fumbled for her picks. With one good twist, the lock gave way, and the two investigators slipped into the barn. All was dark. The earthy smell intensified, as did the infernal heat. Bluebottle flies buzzed in circles around their faces. The electrical lamps were off but blades of light slashed the murk and their eyes adjusted. Elizabeth heard the stir of great bodies, the thump of hooves, the low whinnies. She could make out their shapes in the dark, the equine curves of their backs, the pulsing crescents of their necks, gray musculature undulating across the pen. For that's what it was, A single, enormous pen, circumscribed in a steel fence. The fence was high, perhaps eight feet, and bolted together from I-beams, the kinds that might be used to hold up a skyscraper. Between these solid metal rows, the gaps were wide enough to watch the creatures sway and fidget. Elizabeth had ridden countless horses in her time, and she expected to feel that familiar chemistry. Regular horses would run toward her open hand, allowing her to stroke their muzzles and pat their necks. But at close range, these animals seemed wholly different. There was no playful curiosity. Their hides thudded against each other with frustrated intensity. Their torsos were dense and powerful, more rhinoceros than stallion. They breathed in steady bass voices, baying and grunting. A face lunged into view. Elizabeth fell back just as the creature rammed into the fence. The steel clanged like a church bell. Elizabeth felt the vibration of its impact. The creature bounded away and a savage excitement rumbled through the herd. Elizabeth was startled, but what made her gasp was the horn, that mythic, spiraling horn that stabbed between the girders with deadly precision. Only now did Elizabeth realize how far she'd been leaning, how close that horn had come to impaling her. You okay? Takada rasped. Elizabeth stood steering clear of the fence and brushed strands of hay from her skirt. They've got a funny way of saying hello, but we wanted a distraction, and this will more than suffice. Takada nodded. Showtime. They slithered along the wood wall, feeling their way in the dark. They passed a light switch, but they knew not to risk it. At last, They reached the main entrance, that pair of swinging doors reinforced with iron strips. Rays of light pierced through, interrupted by the shifting guards outside, whose outlines were visible in the cracks between lumber. Elizabeth tiptoed to the steel fence, where she found a second gate, this one fashioned out of metal and held in place with massive bolts. She crouched next to it, then rifled through her satchel. She lifted a bundle into the light. Gently, she peeled back the fabric wrapping. At first, the dynamite looked like a bundle of red candles. The affixed timepiece looked like any alarm clock on any nightstand. The package was wrapped tightly with twine, and wires protruded from the top. Set it for an hour, whispered Elizabeth. Fine by me. Elizabeth turned a key in the back, carefully adjusting the alarm. Kyoko had warned her about this. Crank it too far, and she'd trigger the device. She watched the tiny dial rotate around the clock. Satisfied. And happy not to have atomized them both, Elizabeth set the bomb on the dusty floor. It stood there, next to the metal gate, just beneath its bottommost hinge, ticking away. She turned to Takata Time to blow this joint. The kid at the desk had no idea what was happening. One minute, he was leaning back in his chair, feet on his desk, reading a dog-eared copy of Amazing Exploits. Every now and then, he would dribble some tobacco juice into the wastebasket next to him. The next minute, two figures were clattering down the steps. They stalked toward him, wearing sunglasses and black outfits. One man, one woman. The kid dropped his feet to the floor, and stuffed the magazine into a drawer. "'Uh, say, you two have an appointment?' he squawked. The man lunged over the desk. He grabbed the kid's shirt, dragged him upward, and jammed a cloth into his face. A chemical smell poured into his mouth and nostrils. His eyelids slammed shut, and his body thudded to the concrete. He never felt himself getting tied to a chair and placed in a corner of the room. All he knew was a long, dreamless sleep. These were the studio archives, a lonely basement full of shelving units. Takada stormed down the aisles, speed reading the labels. Each shelf was piled with circular metal canisters. These were the cans, which contained reels of film. Here it all was, every take, every outtake, every last scrap of celluloid ever shot by the Copeland people, diligently stored in one vast library. Do you see it? Elizabeth whispered. Takata waved her off. It's not exactly the Dewey Decimal System. Elizabeth joined him, scanning the labels Every few seconds, she glanced at the entrance. It was hard to believe that anyone would visit the archives in the middle of a workday to retrieve some old footage. But wasn't it possible? She had no idea how studios worked and what kind of traffic they should expect. Somewhere on this lot, editors were splicing film and taping it together in the proper order. Elizabeth wondered how often they raided their own stash, inserting B-roll from one old picture to enhance a new one. Got it, Takata announced, grabbing a stack of cans from the shelf and carrying them to the front. Thank God, said Elizabeth. She spread out her empty satchel on the receptionist's desk and pulled it open. And twenty-five minutes to spare. With that, Takada stopped. He held a can in each hand. He scrutinized the labels, dance sequence number two and dance sequence number three. Well, said Elizabeth, let's pack them up. We've got to scram. Takada mumbled so low she could barely hear him. Twenty-five minutes. He swiveled his head, examining the vestibule. Think there's a projector room around here? We have one at the hotel, Elizabeth chided. Let's go. Takada stepped away from the desk, still clutching the cans. He moved slowly, dreamily, down a short hall. Doors stood on either side, and he glanced through their square windows. Eureka, he said, and shoved one open. Elizabeth's heart sank. She glanced at the chloroformed clerk, still unconscious, in his chair. She looked at the main door, which remained closed. At any moment, someone could waltz in. They were exposed in this basement and cornered. There was no second exit. There was no way to explain what they were doing here. She pushed through the door into a dark, dusty room. Hold on, Takada. The whole point of the plan was to get in and get out without anybody seeing. Takada raised a finger. He had already mounted the reel, and he was now feeding the strip through the machine. He loaded the film with studied efficiency. After a couple of minutes, Takada flipped a switch, and the reel began to spin. Light burst from its bulb, and there on the far wall, a movie began to play. The same scene as before. A woman dressed in a Grecian stola, lazed by a pond. The same pillars, the same leafy wall. But there was something different. The woman wasn't blonde, but brunette. Her hair was long and straight Falling loosely over her shoulders, she smiled gaily at her own reflection. Or was it a smile? Her bliss seemed forced. In any other place, she would look upset, even frightened. The scene repeated itself, a second take. She looked more anxious than before. Her lashes fluttered. She brushed strands of hair from her face or was she wiping away tears? The images flickered morosely in the gray room. A third take, more upset still, eyes wide, chest heaving. Then the horse appeared. It galloped into the scene, fast and furious. The girl stood up. She extended her arms, as if to embrace the horse. But the creature whipped past her, made a quick turn. The woman backed away. She looked off camera toward some unknown person. She spoke, but no sound came. She was bent over, covering her body. She dropped the act. She was yelling now. Then she backed away, her face twisted with terror. She screamed. The horse flashed across the screen. Head bowed low, a vicious charge. Horn sank through flesh. The actress flew up in the air, gored, impaled. The creature whisked her off screen, but the damage was done. In less than a second, 16 frames of film, the woman passed from life to death. Christ Almighty, Elizabeth gasped. But the film kept playing. Takata stood stock still as workers sprinted across the set. The frame was full of crew members running frantically, shrieking for help, all in frigid silence. The film went blank, nothing but dust and scratches on a white background. The next thing Elizabeth heard was the flick of a lighter. Takada exhaled smoke, which wafted spectrally across the beams of light. Five girls, he said. They went through five girls before they got the shot they wanted. Elizabeth swallowed. Maybe Rose is all right. Maybe she just got hurt. Sure, maybe they're feeding her grapes in Beverly Hills. Takada hiked up a sleeve and looked at his wristwatch. "'I count seven minutes. You?' Elizabeth huffed, pulling a pocket watch from her satchel. Seven, Yes, which means we have to wrap up these reels. We need to be ready. Once that bomb blows, all hell's going to break loose.' She pointed at the guttering square of light. "'I mean, clearly.' Takada was slow to move, but he finally dismantled the reel. He stuffed it back in the can.' then stacked it on the others. They fit snugly into Elizabeth's satchel, and the bag bulged suspiciously. But if all went well, no one would bother to notice. The minutes ticked down. Takada finished his lucky strike and started another. He said nothing, only stared into the stale air. Elizabeth wanted to break the silence, but she knew better. Sure, they had just watched a different girl, a different actress, but her fate was likely the same as Rose's. There was no denying the truth or even saying it aloud. Rose was gone, killed on set, stabbed or trampled, disfigured beyond recognition. Takada might as well have just watched his own cousin die on screen instead of the other nameless girl. And somehow, despite all the crewmen rushing to her rescue, no one had ever found out. One minute, said Elizabeth. Takada closed his eyes. One minute, he answered. 60 seconds became 30. Elizabeth moved for the door. She pulled the handle. The satchel rested against her hip. She put on her cheaters. She looked back, Takada remained at the desk, smoking and staring. Takada, are you coming or what? And then the room shook. Elizabeth couldn't see the explosion. She was a safe distance from the time bomb. Despite her best efforts, the clock attached to the dynamite was just a few seconds faster than her pocket watch. She never saw the blast, the barn doors flying off their hinges, the thousand splinters of wood scattering across the yard, the goons with their batons doubling over, covering their heads and faces, the sooty cloud pouring over them. But if she had been there, the bomb would have frozen her nerves. And only then, as the dust hung in the air and the shock sank in, would she realize she couldn't hear a sound, only a tinny ring deep within her eardrums. The goons picked themselves up, dizzy and confused. They could barely see through the fog of smoke and debris, They stumbled around the doorway, which was only a vast black hole. Their limbs shook, otherwise they would have felt the tremors underfoot. If they squinted, they could have seen the hulking silhouettes, but by then it was too late. The horses stampeded from the stables. They stormed in every direction, spreading out across the lot The goons scattered, actors screamed, the beasts led with their horns, long and sharp as rapiers, and workers flung themselves out of the way. There were twenty in all, dashing through doorways, leaping over equipment, bucking in circles. One creature crashed into a soundstage where a Roman epic was in mid-shoot. Centurions dropped their spears and ran for the exits just as the shaggy stallion began to tear the scenery apart. Elizabeth slipped out of the building. Takada followed. They inched toward a stucco corner, and Elizabeth stole a glance. The main road was stretched before them, long and flat, a straight shot to the front entrance. Elizabeth could just make out the booth and striped arm. If Fitzgerald was still working, he was probably scared out of his wits and too distracted to notice them sneaking past on foot. And yet, a veil of smoke drifted across the sky. Elizabeth smelled the burning. She heard the shrieks and cries all around her, Human figures sprinted in and out of sight. She clutched the satchel close, and then, just as she was about to move, a man stumbled into view. He was an older man, his cranium wreathed in white hair. He tripped, then fell headlong into the dust. He tried to regain his feet, but then the animal appeared. In an instant, The hooves had pummeled the man. His body rolled over and over until it settled into a motionless Z. A terrible feeling came to Elizabeth, the sting of regret. She'd known the animals were wild, and they would be hard to round up. She knew the horns would frighten passers-by, causing enough chaos to slip away. But this was something else. The horses were powerful, belligerent. They rivaled any beast in the savannah. There wouldn't just be injuries today. People might die, just as they had died in front of the camera. She might die. Count of three, said Takata. Sure, Elizabeth replied. I hear that's a lucky number. One, Takata said. Two, three. Elizabeth launched forward. She scampered across the packed earth, moving as quickly as her cumbersome clogs allowed. She hadn't expected to run, but now it was time. Not because anyone would wonder who she was or where she came from, but because this studio would soon be mayhem. As she made an arc around the fallen old man whose broken body was moaning audibly. Elizabeth realized that her escape was not a straight line. She would have to dart from building to building, surveilling the landscape with every step. Elizabeth reached the wall of the next building. She heard a fresh round of shouts and screams, along with the collapse of some distant scaffolding. She turned to check Takata's progress to make sure he was following just behind her. But he wasn't. The view was empty. Takada was gone. At first, Roy Copeland thought it was another earthquake. The floor shook. The shades over his window jangled. A framed photograph of himself shaking hands with Buster Keaton fell from its nail, and shattered on the floor. Copeland was used to a few shakes. He'd lived in California his whole life after all. But then he heard the bang. Too loud for a stage gun or even a cannon. No pyrotechnics were scheduled for that day. Whatever it was, that bang was a problem. He looked out the window, watching smoke, diffuse into the sky. Three stories up, the view from Copeland's office was mostly rooftops, plus the mountainous horizon beyond. He turned to the phone on his desk, wondering whom to call. At any moment, he imagined, some manager would barge through his door, blathering some explanation. Until then, he should just wait for a phone call or a memo. Or a personal report. No reason to panic. A few minutes later, Copeland's secretary knocked on his door. There's a Mr. Baines here to see you, sir. Baines. Baines. Ah, yes, he was the production manager for Barbarians at the Gate. Good enough man, he'd probably know what was going on. Show him in, Copeland ordered. The man came inside. A big fellow in overalls, with a mop of dirty blonde hair. He held a bowler hat in his hands. "Uh, "'Morning, boss,' he said. "'Well?' Copeland snapped. "'Some kind of explosion,' Bane stammered. "'Over at the stables.' "'The stables?' Copeland sighed. "'All right, get to the bottom of it, and see if any of the horses got hurt.' "'Well, that's just the thing, boss. They're loose.' "'What do you mean, they're loose?' They broke out. The explosion. It blew the doors right off. Copeland felt the blood drain from his face. Okay, he said, absently stroking his mustache. Rustle them up. Get them back into that barn. And whatever you do, do not call the police. Understand? The man nodded. Sure, boss. The door closed. Copeland's mind raced. An explosion. The doors were blown off. The horses had escaped. This was no accident. Someone had planned this, he knew. Someone had planted an explosive on his property. Now those goddamned monsters were running free, doing who knew what in his studio lot. The phone still didn't ring. He heard voices through the glass, screams, yelps, men calling to each other. It was chaos out there, Copeland could already tell. Better to stay here, in the safety of his office. The last thing he needed was to step outside, wander aimlessly around, and get chased down by one of those things, just like... He shook the thought away. Stupid movie. Stupid, expensive, dangerous movie. Why had he said yes to that goddamn Frenchman? Of course, it had seemed like a sure thing. A cash cow. Every little girl in the country wanted to see a real-life unicorn. Sure, the movie would astonish the world, followed by a national tour of zoos and circuses. He'd salivated at the idea. A new breed of horse that no white man had ever seen. The exclusive property of Copeland Studios, What self-respecting producer could have turned that down? And then, the accident. A girl so mangled, she spent two months in the hospital. A coterie of lawyers, a mountain of hush money, crewmen reassigned to prevent loose lips. But sure, accidents happened. Then, a second incident. Another girl, her legs broken, this time an amputated leg. More lawyers, more money. He should have pulled the plug then and there, but they were in so deep. Then a third accident. This one, fatal. A dead girl, skewered on a godforsaken unicorn horn. How he'd allowed the film to continue, he'd never know. But Beaumont had a way of talking. "'It will be beautiful, a work of art. Please, Roy, we are so close.' And of course, Roy Copeland didn't give a rat's ass about art. All he wanted was a hit, a box office sensation, an historic novelty, something that every family on the planet just had to see for themselves. And if two girls had to get hurt, and two of them had to die, well, so be it. At least one survived, and she'd be a star, and that's all anyone would care about. Didn't Grace McHugh drown in quicksand when they shot across the border? Didn't Charles Chandler get shot in the head by a live round when they made the captive? Didn't those two pilots die in a plane crash, filming the Skywayman? Did he really have to fork over so many envelopes just to keep the tabloids off his back? Never mind the LAPD. Was there a copper in Southern California he hadn't paid to keep his trap shut? Roy Copeland heard a sound, barely a sound, more like a whisper of movement just beyond the door. A bump, a slide, the faintest suggestion of action. Copeland moved toward the door, expecting some kind of follow-up. Had Baines returned? Why so quickly? What was he doing out there? The handle turned, the door swung open, A man stood there, calmly taking up the doorframe. He wore a black suit and fedora. Sunglasses covered his eyes. He had a sturdy jaw and pleated slacks. He looked like any of a hundred detectives Copeland had seen on the silver screen. If anything, the visitor was a cliché. But this man had a gun. A real gun. Small and snub-nosed aimed at Copeland's stomach. Move, he snarled. Copeland hesitated. He wasn't used to following orders, but then he remembered the bang outside, the explosion, the freed horses, not an accident. Someone had done this, and now that someone had apparently arrived, right on his doorstep. The stranger stepped to the side, letting Copeland pass but the executive had barely left his office when the stranger grabbed him by the collar of his suit, shoving him forward. Copeland felt the barrel press against his spine. Stairwell, said the man. Everything was hazy. Copeland hardly noticed his secretary slumped over her desk, knocked out with chloroform. He didn't notice the stranger snatch a chair from an empty desk and drag it behind them. The door opened and Copeland was flung into the stairwell and across the landing. He scrambled, but he stayed on his feet. When Copeland turned, he saw the stranger jamming the chair under the doorknob. For now, no one was coming through that door. Copeland was alone, alone with a man and a gun. Maybe you could tell me what this is all about, Copeland said. He stuffed a hand in his pocket. He leaned against the frosted window behind him. He was striking a pose, he realized, as if the stranger was about to take his picture. Somehow, this calmed him. The stranger ripped off his sunglasses. What do you think it's about? Holy hell, Copeland spat. You're, you're that Jap, the one snooping around my studio, chatting up my crew. That's right said the stranger, but all that's over. Now you're the one I'm chatting up. Copeland felt a flash of anger. He tried to suppress it. This madman had a gun. He'd just detonated a bomb or something like that, and nobody knew where they were. He had to be careful. But still, he felt his temper growing. Who was this man to question him, this nobody in his fake suit, Well, said Copeland, if you're here about those girls, you're barking up the wrong tree. You know that, right? The man stared hard at him. How come? I didn't bust them up. I don't even direct anymore. How was I supposed to know what that crazy frog was up to? You think he'd told me about all that? That picture was a nightmare from the day I said yes. Listen, you and me, we're on the same side here. What happened was appalling. You know it, I know it, and the truth will out, believe me. To hell with the scandal. This creep, this Beaumont, has to answer for what he did. Pretty speech, said the stranger, but how come you didn't turn him in? Copeland felt another wave of anger. You think it's so easy, don't you? Go to the police, tell the public, but you have to time it out. You have to tell the truth the right way. ''Okay,'' said the stranger. ''Suppose I buy that baloney. Let's say the right way is to tell me what happened. Right here, right now. Where are the girls, the dead ones I mean?'' Copeland gulped down a breath. But just then, as he tried to stammer a response, his finger brushed something in his pocket. Something hard, metallic. My lighter, he thought. The dead ones? he said, groping the lighter. He took a long look at the chair. If he could just kick it out of the way, Yank opened the door. There was a chance. You think they told me? They just handled it. That's all I know, I swear. Who's they? They, them, the guys who handle these things. I see, said the stranger. And who gave the order? Beaumont? Some airhead auteur who can't even speak English? Is he the mastermind who gets rid of dead actresses? It was his mess, Copeland seethed. He let those accidents happen. That's right, four accidents. How many times do you idiots have to touch a radiator before you know it's hot? Copeland ground his teeth. Fury overcame fear. And there was no arguing with this man. The stranger had made up his mind and there was only one way out. He hurled the lighter. It hit the stranger square in the face, and he recoiled. Copeland seized his chance. He sprang forward, grabbing for the chair. But the stranger recovered. He tackled Copeland against the cinder block wall. Copeland felt his ribs strain under the impact, knocking the oxygen from his lungs. He tried to grab the stranger's clothes, but his fingers only slid off the smooth fabric. The stranger grappled him, muscled him backward, and then, just as he tried to anchor his feet, the ground vanished. Copeland felt himself fall through the air, then crash on the jagged steps. He somersaulted down to the second landing. Now he was sprawled out, Face down, breathless. He couldn't move. Every bone screamed with pain. Copeland panted into the concrete floor. His head spun. He heard footsteps above, calm and slow, coming nearer. Copeland whimpered as he rolled himself onto his back. "'It wasn't supposed to go this way,' said the stranger. "'My friend just wanted the outtakes.' Blow up the barn, cause a commotion, and then, while you were wondering what the hell just happened, we'd quietly leak those film reels to the press. No fuss, nobody gets hurt. Or nobody important, anyway. The stranger sat down on a step, the gun dangling above Copeland's prone body. But I knew it wouldn't work. I had half a mind you'd burned those outtakes, and if you were wise, you would have. ''Who the hell are you?'' spat Copeland. He lurched upward, propping his back against the wall. ''Doesn't matter,'' said the man. ''And don't you worry, Beaumont is on my list. I won't let him off the hook for anything. But you, you were the one in charge. The one with the pocketbook.'' ''You want to ruin me?'' Copeland said. ''Go ahead. You've got what you came for, those reels. Show them off. I don't care.'' Wouldn't I love to, said the stranger, but no tabloid would run that story, not if you paid them not to. Philanderers? Sure, but not movie accidents, especially dead girls nobody's ever heard of. Wouldn't sell papers, not sexy enough. Better just take the money and mums the word. Is that what you want? Copeland screeched. I I can get you money, cash, whatever you want. Yeah? You gonna buy me off? Sure, anything. The stranger leaned closer. Make me an offer. How about. Copeland ran fingers through his hair, trying to think. Pain shot through his body like electrical currents. How about a thousand dollars? A thousand dollars, echoed the stranger. Is that what my cousin is worth to you? A cool K? Your. But Copeland couldn't say the word. Now he understood. That Jap girl. The one who got trampled. The fourth accident. The girl they buried in a cement foundation in the middle of the night. This wasn't some vigilante. He wasn't crazy at all. Lord knew how all of them stuck together. This was personal. $5,000, he said as somberly as he could. I'll bet that's twice what you make in a year. Five thousand dollars, said the stranger, never to know what happened to Ryokimiyashi. Just to walk away, is that the idea? More? offered Copeland, feeling a surge of panic. Really, anything, anything you want. Here's what I want, said the stranger. I want you to feel remorse. More remorse than you've ever felt in your life. Because you just can't believe you let those girls suffer. And for a movie, I want that shame to eat you up from the inside. To make you sick to see yourself in the mirror. I want you to think, how is it even possible to keep such a rancid secret? And when you can't take it anymore, you put a bullet in your own head. Because you know the world is better off without you. Copeland felt himself smirk bullet in my head. What are you even talking about? For what? I didn't do anything. Even through his pain, Copeland felt another cyclone of rage. You think I can't find you? You think I can't crush you, you little yellow bastard? You'll be dead before you know it. You, your friends, your whole goddamn family. The stranger grimaced. Fat chance. Copeland opened his mouth. But the gun was already raised, the trigger was already pulled, the sparks and smoke were already bursting, and before he could think another thought, Copeland was already dead, crumpled in a stairwell with a snub-nosed pistol in his lap. You've been listening to The Girl in the Picture. Episode 5. Written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music provided and licensed by Audioblocks.com. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Airmail Media in Providence, Rhode Island. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.